Good evening. It is Good Friday, you guys. I'm excited that we get to, to worship and look at the cross of Christ. Uh, we are going to uh, jump straight into Matthew uh, this evening as we follow Jesus, picking up the readings that we just finished, as we follow Jesus up the hill to be crucified. And as we walk through it, I want you to visualize uh, the different scenes of Jesus going to the cross and on the cross. I want you to picture it. There are moments where you have to close your eyes to do this. I invite you to do it. And the more that we picture and visualize what happened at the cross, the more we will begin to understand why we call this Good Friday. Let me pray and then we'll jump into the text. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the work that you have done. May we see it so clearly with open eyes and may we respond in Jesus name amen all right verse 32 as they went out they found a man of Cyrene Simon by name they compelled this man to carry his cross all right so where we left off on Sunday Jesus was being brutally tortured and beaten he is physically unable to take the cross up the hill now, there's a man named Simon of Cyrene who's passing through. He's from the region of Cyrene, which is in modern-day Libya. He's probably here on pilgrimage to, see, uh, to be a part of the Passover uh, feast. And they grab him, and they say, help Jesus take this cross up the hill. So they come up the hill where Jesus will be crucified. Verse 33, it says, when they, found, when they came to the place called Golgotha, which means, uh, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. All right, so they move to a place called Golgotha, which is right outside the city walls. It's called Place of a Skull. This is where Jesus will be executed. Uh, in, uh, in Latin, it's where we get the term Calvary. He, he's taken up the hill of Calvary, and he's given uh, a drink of wine mixed with gall. Now, it's debated whether this is an act of kindness or if this is further mockery. You can go back and forth on this. Uh, gall is a bitter uh, drink. It's mixed with the wine. And I would argue from the context of Matthew that it's probably a little bit of mockery. Mocking him. This whole, this whole we're going to see a lot of theme of Jesus' humiliation and mocking as you walk through these scenes in Matthew. He refuses to drink it. And then they nail his hands to the cross and nail his feet to the cross and raise him up. Verse 35 says, When they crucified him they divided his garments among them by casting lots and they sat down and kept watch over him there and over his head they put the charge against him which read this is Jesus the king of the Jews then two robbers were crucified with him one on his one on the right and one on the left so when he's raised up there are men below him casting lots gambling over his clothes which means either they're gambling over the clothes that will come off of him when he comes down from the cross, or they have raised him up naked. This is deeply humiliating. The crucifixion was meant to be humiliating. They are gambling over his clothes, and they put a sign over his head to further mock our Savior. It said, this is Jesus, King of the Jews, mocking him, not realizing the irony of the king they're actually crucifying and killing. And then it tells us that he was crucified between two robbers. Now the same word in the original language for robber is where we get the word insurrectionist, rebel. It's what we saw Sunday when we walked through Barabbas being exchanged. 
All right, it, it's, it's possible these men are also rebels, not just thieves being crucified to the left and right of Jesus. And then the mocking continues. Verse 39, it says, And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. They're mocking him, not realizing he was speaking of his own body when he made that statement. They continue to mock him. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. I want you to see what type of mockery this is. They are belittling, they are mocking Jesus' relationship with his own heavenly father. They're making fun of his relationship with his father, so much so that the robbers to this left and right start to join in on this. We know one of them finally repents in the end before time ends. But everyone here is mocking Jesus. And this is an especially painful dig. Because right now, God the Father is pouring out His wrath on His Son. But right now, Jesus longs to hear the loving voice of His Father. And all He hears is silence and wrath. It says, verse 45, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lay my sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus has enjoyed eternal, joy-filled, loving fellowship with the Father. And in one of the darkest moments of all of history, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is a verbatim, that is an exact quote from Psalm 22.1. And if I had more time, I'd help you see that this entire section is fulfilling Psalm 22. The only answer he gets in this moment is wrath and silence. And this moment is so dark that literally creation embodies it. This is a darkness hovers over all the land. Jesus is in physical agony. He is slowly suffocating. His flesh has been ripped to shreds. And for the first time ever, this perfect fellowship he's had with his father is broken as God's wrath is poured out on him. And it says in verse 47, some bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah, which in the Aramaic would have sounded similar from the ground. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Further mocking Jesus on the cross. Slowly suffocating and dying. Verse 50 says, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Now, the wording of that is very intentional. I don't want us to miss this. Jesus is in control of all of this. Jesus is in control of all of this. He willingly submits to the will of the Father in the garden. 
He willingly journeys towards the cross. He willingly allows sinful men to try him, to torture him, to beat him, to mock him. He willingly does this. And when it's getting ready to all be finished, he cries out with a loud cry and willingly yields his spirit. And it is finished. And the work is finally done. And creation immediately feels the effects of this. Verse 51, it says, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. So when Jesus breathes his last breath, an earthquake occurs. And in the Old Testament, earthquakes come about alongside mighty acts of God. And when the mighty work of Christ is complete, Miraculous things start to happen. The first thing it says is that the curtain was torn in two. Now, it doesn't say which curtain that was, but from the context, it looks like this is the curtain in the innermost part of the temple. The innermost part of the temple uh, was called the Holy of Holies. This is where God's presence resided in. This is where he ruled and reigned from. And there was this thick curtain that separated this part of the temple from the rest. This part of the temple from the people of God. Because God is so holy and he's so perfect, sin cannot be in the presence of a holy and perfect God. And when Jesus breathes his last breath, that curtain is torn in two from top to bottom. When it is finished, there is no longer any separation between God and man through Christ. Through Christ, we get access to the Father. So the curtain is torn in two, and then it says, that an earthquake happens. Now, this is one of the strangest and most debated passages in the Gospels, and I don't have the space to really walk us through all the ins and outs of how this can be interpreted because there's a lot of different takes on it. But I'll give you the cleanest, what I think is the best way to understand this, that when Jesus dies, an earthquake happens, there are tombs that are opened. And, and, and some of these tombs belong to recent followers of Jesus, and that when he rises as the first fruit of the resurrection on Easter Sunday, there are some saints that come to life. Again, that is debated. If you want to debate that later, we can. But we're not going to spend a lot of time on that as we're working through this passage. As creation continues to react to the death of Christ, there's a Roman soldier, a Roman centurion, who sees all of this. And he says, truly, this was the Son of God. And that is pointing forward to the day, for the next 2,000 years, when Gentiles like you and me will make the same conclusion when we believe in Jesus. Truly, this was the Son of God. Now, we could spend months walking through each of these pictures step by step, but we've been in the Gospel of Matthew for over a year, and I know that some of you are kind of tired at this point. So, but there's so much packed in here, and just, there's just a few things I want to focus on as we close out this evening. Matthew focuses on the humiliation of Christ. I mean, from when he's tried by the Sanhedrin from the religious rulers, 
when he's mocked, when he's beaten, when they're, when they're putting the robe on him and treating him, mocking him as a king, all the way to all the, the parts that we see right here where Jesus is being humiliated, in the midst of all of it is a phrase, and it's subtle. When they're mocking him, it says, if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. There, there's something deeper happening in that challenge, if you are the Son of God. You see, in Matthew 4, the exact same phrase, I mean, the, in the original language, is the exact same phrase is uttered by Satan as Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. If you are the Son of God, he says, turn these stones into bread. If you are the Son of God, cast yourself off the temple. Don't you know that angels will come and save you if you are the Son of God? You see, in that moment in Matthew 4, Satan is trying to divert the mission of God. He's trying to stop, Satan. He's trying to stop Jesus right then and tempting him. If you are the Son of God. And Satan is still at work as he's on the cross and they're mocking him with the same phrase. If you are the Son of God, God should come and help you right now. If you are the Son of God, come down off that cross. We read the Jesus Storybook Bible to our kids regularly. And I love how they tackle this story. I love what it says. It says it wasn't the nails that held him there. Because in this moment, he could call a whole legion of angels. And in a moment, he could call down, he could flex his power, and all of his enemies would, would be silenced in a moment. He says it wasn't the nails that held him there. It was his love. It was his deep love for us. Jesus is derided with the same temptation of Satan. Abandon the mission. You don't have to go through with this. You can leave now. You can flex your power. If you are the Son of God. It's not the nails that keep him there. It is his love for us. Jesus could have taken the easy road. He could have walked away at any moment. But praise Jesus that he did not abandon our hope at the cross. Praise Jesus that as he's on the cross, God has us in mind. For those of us who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, who have trusted in Jesus as our only hope, he had you in mind on the cross. His love for you is what kept him there. This is our only hope. That's why we call this Good Friday. Jesus is our only hope. If Jesus doesn't submit to the will of the Father, if he defends himself at the trial, if he listens to the echoes of Satan, if he doesn't go through with this all the way to the bloody end, we're hopeless. We have no shot at redemption. We are sprinting towards hell without any hope. But because of his great love for us, we call this Good Friday. We're going to sing, a, 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 the next song that we're going to sing is beautiful. I love the first verse of it. It says, man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, what a Savior. We were ruined, hopeless sinners that God reclaimed by His blood. We call it good because God so loved ruined sinners like you and me that He gave up His only Son to be crushed, to be crucified, and to die for our rebellion, for our sins. The band's going to come up. 
And as they sing this next song, we are going to take the Lord's Supper. If you are a Christian, we invite you to take part in this meal. And as you take this meal, I want you to picture Jesus on the cross. I want you to think about the suffering. I want you to think about the wrath of God, the Father being poured out on Him. That was meant towards us. Because of our rebellion, because of our sin, we have earned death. But Jesus died in our place. So Christian, whatever guilt you're wrestling with right now, whatever sin you're wrestling with right now, whatever shame you feel, I want you to know something. That as you take this bread which is symbolic of his body that was torn to shreds. When you take this cup, which reminds us of the blood of the shed, as you, as you take part in this meal, I want you to remember that when Jesus, when, the, when God the Father sees you, he doesn't see your shame, he doesn't see your sin, he doesn't see your guilt, he sees the blood of Christ who has covered it and his perfect standing in our place. So I want you to take part in this meal. I want you to remember why we call this Good Friday. And then when we get done, I want you to worship. I want you to sing. I want you to praise our Savior because He's worthy of it because He went to the cross for us. And if you are not a Christian, I don't want you to take part in this meal. I want you to take part in Christ. I want you to see how much God loves you. How much He loves you, that His love held Him there on the cross for you, that you might believe. That you don't have to, uh, to earn God's favor. He lovingly poured it out on the cross for you. I want you to not take part in this meal. I want you to sit and reflect and take part in Christ and believe in Him. Don't miss this Good Friday. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Let me pray. God, I pray right now. And for those of us that are in Christ, we would worship. We would see you as so beautiful and good and glorious. And as we take this meal, we'd be reminded of the gospel that saved us. The Lord, lead us into worship and praise of you. God, if there's anyone here that has not trusted in you as their only hope, God, I pray that you would break through their heart right now. I pray that you'd be so overwhelming that their only response would be belief. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As we sing this song, as you feel led, you may go back and take the Lord's Supper. You can come to the front. You can go to the back. There should be some up there as well. And there's gluten-free in the back left-hand corner. But let us respond in worship.